Scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 10 and verse 16. It reads, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will not what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who is speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and child will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we ask again that we would have clarity on your word. Lord, I just pray for this church that that we would be ambassadors of the kingdom that we wouldn't shrink back from the hostility and persecution that this world offers, but that we would be bold, that we would be courageous, that we wouldn't be apathetic or lazy servants. Help us to be on mission, to look for opportunities in this vapor of a life that we have to save others with the gospel message of Christ as we bring it to them faithfully as you've called us to. Empower us now. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1940, Operation Dynamo was one of the most important missions in all of World War II. The mission was to rescue thousands of British and Belgian and French forces from the beaches of Dunkirk after they had been cut off and surrounded by enemy German forces. However, with the encroaching German army nearly upon them, it seemed impossible for the military commanders to get their people off of this beach. They didn't have enough ships, they didn't have enough time, which meant that the soldiers stranded there would certainly perish at the hands of Hitler's army. Nevertheless, they still had to try to do what they can to save every life that they could. And so Operation Dynamo was implemented, which was a two-day mission that sought to rescue, out of the many more than this, they they sought to try to at least get 45,000 troops off the coast, knowing the rest would perish. And so on that first day, They set at it, and at the end of the day, they reached and succeeded getting about 8,000 men off the beaches of Dunkirk. However, that wasn't even a dent in the total number of soldiers, which meant that they weren't going to nearly get close to hitting their goal at all in that two-day operation. And so what happened then was they called anyone and everyone available to come and help rescue these soldiers. And... The little ships of Dunkirk, as they were called, answered the military's call for aid, and on the following day, they showed up with tons of help. The little ships of Dunkirk was a small civilian-led flotilla, is the word, I guess, made of 700 fishing boats, pleasure crafts, civilian boats, who all banded together on that second day in order to cross the English Channel to rescue the soldiers whose lives were in jeopardy. And so they made their way across the English Channel. And as they did, they faced German bombers, they faced fighter planes, and motor torpedo boats. But they did it anyways, without guns, without protection, without defenses, in order to try to save as many lives as they possibly could. However, thankfully, uh, Hitler put a halt call on the German tanks, thinking that they would get stuck in some muddy areas as they were approaching the Allied forces. That actually gave them a few extra days in order to try to save more people. And so the little ships of Dunkirk continued on several days past that two-day operation 
because they had more time. And so for the next several days, the little ships of Dunkirk made trip after trip in the face of great peril, jeopardy, and even to many of their own deaths in order to save as many lives as they could. Now, I said before the military's goal was to save 45,000 troops. However, because of this fleet, which wasn't so little collectively, because their willingness to put their lives at risk, they ended up saving more than 338,000 soldiers who were evacuated to safety. And historians look back at this and no questions about it. Because of that, of those soldiers' lives being saved, there was a profound impact upon the war, a war that might have been lost otherwise. And why? Because so many average civilians, farmers, bankers, shopkeepers, and fishermen banded together to become the little ships of Dunkirk to try to save so many lives in the face of great danger. In Matthew chapter 10, church, Jesus' flotilla is sent on a rescue mission in a similar way to literally save the world. He's putting them together. He's commissioning them. He's sending them out in a similar way, right? We don't go out with, with battleships and cruisers as Christians, do we? No, we go out defensively, defenselessly. We go out in the face of great change danger. We don't go out there conquering with guns and, and military might. No, we go out preaching a message of peace to a hostile world. And this is an important message because just as those soldiers would have surely perished without being rescued, so too will those that we are sent to bring this gospel of good news to. They're going to perish as well if we do not come and bring them this gospel message. And so Jesus, in this passage, he sends his disciples out. How? As sheep among wolves is how our passage begins. Realizing that they will face immense hostile opposition. So if you have your Bibles with me this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 10, where we're going to see four kinds of hostility that we are going to face if we hear Jesus' call to obey the Great Commission. And here's what they are. The hostility towards the kingdom is religious, it's ruthless, it's relational, and fourth, it's revealing. Let's look at that first one. The hostility of the kingdom is first off religious. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is sending out his disciples to preach the message of the kingdom, which is what? What is the message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus sends out his disciples to preach to the house of Israel, not to the non-Jewish Gentiles yet, as we talked about two weeks ago. And for the rest of chapter 10, Jesus is giving them instructions on what exactly they should expect. And what should they expect? They should expect hostility. In Matthew's account of this, he only mentions 12 disciples. And this is, this is something that we didn't talk about last time, but in Luke's account... It's actually Jesus is commissioning the whole 72 to go out, heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out demons, and to preach the gospel message, right? Evidently, the full 72 here were given this power that Jesus had and kept showing over and over in the miracles in chapters 8 and 9, as we saw. He gave it to these 72 and said, go out and preach the message of the kingdom. Now, we slightly addressed this last time, but this raises an important question for us. Does this chapter apply across the board for all disciples of Jesus at all times and in all places? It's a really important question. Does it apply only to the 12? Does it apply to the full 72 or all disciples of Jesus in all times and in all places? That's the question. So which is it? The 12, the 72, or all? Well, the answer by now you should know is, of course, yes. It's all, all three of those. However, it's not a full yes. It's more of a kind of yes, right? There's distinctions here that we have, to, we have to notice. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Matthew doesn't tell his story in chronological order, does he? He doesn't do that. Mark and Luke are a lot better about that, but Matthew, he doesn't do that. He doesn't tell it like a normal person is how I say it. No, no, it's normal for him, but you know what I mean? He doesn't tell it with, you know, this is how we normally tell stories, right? You've got a start of the story, middle, and end. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew doesn't tell it in chronological order. He tells it more like some of you all here tell stories, 
right, who break the normal storytelling rules, right? Looks more like this a little bit. Start, middle, side, you know, all that stuff. My wife's raising her hand. <laughs> yes, she does that. Matthew's similar to that in how he tells his story. Okay? He's not interested in the chronology of the events. He's interested in making a main point. He's not twisting the information. He's just putting it together in a way to build the main thesis that he's trying to get us to understand. Now, Matthew isn't quite to that degree, obviously, but he does break things up. And to make things difficult is Jesus break things, breaks things up too. In his instructions here, he doesn't just say clearly for us which disciples he's speaking to. He lumps it all together. He doesn't come along and say, all right, listen up, 12 disciples. I have instructions that's only going to apply for you. Rest of you guys, this isn't for you. 72, wait, no. And then he doesn't come along with the 72, and then he doesn't address all disciples at all times. He doesn't do that. He just lumps it all together without distinction, and we're meant to figure it out, which is challenging sometimes. It's challenging sometimes to figure out, okay, which of this applies to me as a disciple living in 2021, and which of this applies to the disciples back in Jesus' day, and which applies to the disciples in the future, as we're going to see. However, this is often how the Bible works. We see this all the time with prophecy, right? So, for example, and I want to take a moment to look at this because this is really important stuff. In, Matthew, in Micah, not Matthew, in Micah chapter 5, we find a prophecy about the Messiah. And here's what the prophecy says. I'm going to read all of it. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. What's that talking about? Mary, right? And then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and shall stand. I think that's Mary, actually. You should look at that. But let's keep going. And he shall stand and the shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Okay, so here's my question for you. Is that prophecy referring to Jesus' first coming or his second coming? Yes. Both, right? But does it clearly articulate that for us in that passage? No, it doesn't. Often you find the messianic prophecies of Christ just lumped together and that's what threw the Jews off because they were confused. They saw the prophecies about Jesus as being a conquering king and they liked those because they wanted to get Rome off their back. But they disregarded the ones talking about Messiah also being a suffering servant. And we can really mess this up if we're not careful here because what a lot of people today will do is they say, oh, the this, this ones that are talking about the second coming, that was fulfilled in the first coming and those ones are all metaphorical. Those are all spiritual fulfillments. No, they're not. Those are fulfilled in Christ soon, very soon, Lord willing, to come second coming. This matters a lot. If we don't understand this concept, we're going to mess ourselves up big time when we try to read the Bible. We're not going to be able to differentiate what it's talking about. And this kind of concept happens over and over throughout Scripture. We're not talking about double fulfillment. We're talking about partial fulfillment and then the completion of the fulfillment. Because God, when he gives prophecy a lot to us, part of it is fulfilled. You see this happen where part of it might be fulfilled here and the rest of it is fulfilled down the road over here. This happens with Joel chapter 2, right? The prophecy in Joel chapter 2 about how God will pour out his spirit upon his people and they shall dream dreams and prophesy. When was that fulfilled? Well, Peter in Acts chapter 2 says it was at Pentecost, right? He stands up and he says, Joel chapter 2, this prophecy is fulfilled in your presence today. That's what Peter says. But if you look clearly at that passage in Joel chapter 2, I don't know about you, but when did the blood and fire and vapor of smoke with the sun turning into darkness and the moon to blood and the king return? When did all that happen? It didn't yet. It's partially fulfilled and the full fulfillment is still yet to come. So the same sort of thing is going on in Matthew chapter 10 with Jesus' disciples. It applies 
partially to the 12 and the 72, partially to all disciples, and most likely what I think at the end here, it has an application to tribulation saints. We're going to touch on it a little bit later. Now, maybe you're not convinced. Maybe you say, no, this is, this is for all disciples at all times and all places. Okay, well, as we said two weeks ago, then stop preaching to anyone who's not Jewish. Right? Because what does it say right in this text? Only go to the house of Israel. Don't go to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. Only go to the house of Israel. Okay, well, that was, that was temporary. That was just fine, but the rest is for us. Okay, well, we've opened the door now to at least looking at this text and saying some of this was for then, some of this doesn't apply then for now. This passage, without a doubt, clearly has, at least in part, some dispensational applications for the disciples of Jesus. It absolutely does. We have to understand that some of this instruction applies for then, some of it applies for our day, and some of it clearly applies for the day to come. Now, what is one clearly common truth doesn't matter which disciple you are, then, now, or to come. What is a common truth that Jesus is calling all of his disciples to be? Witnesses. Right? Doesn't matter if you were one of the 12 or the 72 or today or a tribulation saint. You're called to be a witness. He's calling all disciples at all times in all places to be ambassadors of the kingdom and to proclaim the kingdom's message, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount? He said this. Speaking of disciples, he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. There you have it. Christ's disciples are to be salt and light. We're to be witnesses. We're to be ambassadors to a dark and broken world. Now, the question is here, is everyone going to always appreciate that light? No. Just like if you wake me up at five in the morning with the light coming on, I'm going to throw a pillow at you. Not everyone's going to appreciate this light. Not everyone's going to enjoy salt being poured into their wounds. You know, one of the major groups of people who are definitely not going to appreciate this salt and light that Jesus' disciples are called to be? The religious Religious people are going to hate it. See, religious people hate the disciples of Jesus because they hate Jesus, and they hate Jesus because they hate the gospel. They do. They fundamentally hate the gospel. And why do religious people hate the gospel? Because its diagnosis is way too offensive. Who wants to hear it? It's a diagnosis that says that even on Gandhi's best day, you know what he was? A sin-bound hellion. All of Gandhi's work before God, what were they? Filthy rags. <laughs> Come on, seriously? Gandhi? Like, he was a good guy. Like, lighten up, preacher. No, that's what the gospel says. If you ever want to really offend somebody, tell them the pure, unadulterated gospel message. Well, what's so offensive about that? Well, I, don't, I don't see why the gospel would be so offensive to people. Why would they take offense to it? Because I'm not talking about the American gospel, shameless plug for the DVD back there. I'm not talking about our Americanized gospel. The Americanized gospel is not offensive. It's just not. But the real gospel is. The real gospel absolutely is offensive. See, the real gospel isn't God loves you and has a perfect plan for your life. Anybody heard that one before? It's not the gospel. The real gospel also isn't Give to God and you'll get all the things you ever wanted. He'll bless you. That's not the real gospel. It's a false gospel. Nor is the real gospel, say a prayer when you're 12, grow up, leave the church, chase the world, be a hellion who lives in sin, and then go to heaven anyways when you die because you said a prayer that you really meant when you were 12. Is that the real gospel? No, not even a little bit. You know what the real gospel is? Go back to Jesus' words with me in Matthew chapter 4. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, I'll just read it for us. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? He gives us a glimpse of the gospel there. And what is involved with the gospel? Repentance. Absolutely is involved. Right? And repentance isn't going to a revival meeting when you're 12 and getting fired up because the preacher really laid it on thick and you were emotionally distraught, and so you made a decision that had no fruit in your life whatsoever. What does Jesus say about his disciples? By your fruit, you will know them. The reality is our culture, when it's not opposed to the gospel, it's not opposed to the real gospel. The real culture will put up with these false gospels, these prosperity gospels, these say, a emotionally felt prayer gospels. Don't get me wrong. You absolutely should pray when you come to salvation and repent of your sins and trust in Christ. But if you just wrote your date in the back of the Bible and that's all the evidence and fruit you've ever seen in your life, it's not the real gospel. The real gospel involves repentance from broken sinners who will continue to sin. Don't get me wrong. We will sin. But it's going to involve fruit. The gospel saves us, continues to save us, and one day will ultimately save us when we stand before Christ. To tell someone then the real gospel is to look them in the eyes and it's to start with the bad news before you get to the good news. It's to look them in the eyes and say, you know what? You're a sinner. You've broken God's laws. And he's not indifferent to the breaking of his laws. In fact, God hates sin. And he will damn sinners to an eternity in hell as righteous and just punishment for all those who have broken his laws. In fact, God is returning soon in Christ, his son, who will destroy every sinner. He will wipe them out with the voice. He will speak. And out of his mouth will come a two-edged sword which will wipe out all those who are sinners. Told you it's bad news. You see now why people don't want to hear the real gospel. It's offensive. We're not even finished yet. The real gospel goes on to explain that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to atone for our sins. Nothing. I don't care how many Hail Marys you say. I don't care how many soup kitchens you serve in. I don't care how many times you read your Bible or how many times you go to church and help out with various ministries. None of it makes a sinner righteous before a holy God. None of it can stop the wrath of God that is heading straight for sinners like a freight train. Then the gospel goes on to tell this. There is only one thing that can. One thing. Not a prayer. Not being born into a Christian home. Not being religious and going to church. There's one thing that can atone for the sins of humanity. And what is it? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The real gospel tells us that, you know what? You know how bad you are? You're so bad that the perfect son of God had to come and live the perfect life you couldn't live and then die the death you could never die in order to bring you righteousness, in order to pay for your sin. That's how bad it was. Then the real gospel goes on to explain that the only way we receive salvation for our sins isn't through merit, right? It's not through something we do. It's a gift of God so that no one will boast. And that gift is received how? By grace through faith. And bear in mind, this is received by grace through faith in Christ with another really offensive word added to that, and it's alone. You don't get to God through Hinduism. You don't get to God through Allah. There is one path, Christ says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. It's offensive. The world hates this message. They hate this message because who wants to hear that the little nice old lady living down the street is just as sinful and guilty before God, just as condemned before God as the serial killer? Who wants to hear that? The real gospel message of Jesus Christ is an offense that says every single person is born into this world as a hell-bent sinner. 
And so the religious bent, the religious nature of the human heart hears this message and it says, are you kidding me? You really believe? What? No. God would never send good people to hell. He'd never do that. God's good and all, but he wouldn't do that. No, you're wrong. And then it, the logical outflow from that is I'm a good person because I'm better than other people. So God would never send me to hell. God doesn't care about the way I live my life. Seriously, you think God is that uptight? He, you think he cares about who we sleep with? You think he cares about what I look at? You, care, you think he cares about how I spend my time? Even if I spend my time on good things, if those good things become ultimate things, you're telling me God cares about that? He does. What does Jesus say? He tells his true disciples to watch out for the religious over and over again because they hate him and they hate the gospel, and therefore they hate them and will persecute them. Watch out, he says, as verse 17 tells us what's going to happen. Watch out because they will flog you in the synagogues. Over and over, Jesus warns his followers to be careful and wary of the religious. And what animal does Jesus often compare the religious leaders to being? Wolves, right? Look at verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In Acts 20, it says this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And so if Christ's disciples are sheep and the religious are wolves, what does that mean then for the sheep? It means you better be careful because wolves are vicious. Wolves are absolutely ruthless. That leads us to our second point. The hostility towards the kingdom is first off religious in nature. Second off, it's ruthless. In verse 18, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be persecuted and dragged before governors and kings. Why? For his sake. But Jesus says, this is actually a part of God's plan. Don't be surprised. It's a part of God's plan. As the last part of verse 18 says, this happens so that why? So that they can bear witness. He's saying that persecution then isn't the enemy team winning. It's not. Sometimes we think it is, but it's absolutely not. It's a part of God's plan. And this is remarkable to us, especially as Americans, because a lot, for a lot of us, we sometimes look around at our disintegrating culture and we start to get hot under the collar. We start to get worried a bit that maybe God is asleep on his throne. Our culture is quickly turning from being apathetic towards Christianity towards being outright hostile towards it, and we're seeing this shift happen faster than I think any one of us thought it would. And while it's not there yet, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to read the map here, does it? We know what's likely coming. And yet, what do we do in the face of these shifting winds? Forget that it's part of the plan. Forget that the sovereign God, all-powerful God of the universe, planned for this. It's a part of his plan. Remember when Craig was here, my old pastor from down the cities, and do you remember what he preached on? He preached on persecution. You were here with us for that. And we looked at 1 Peter 4.12, and that text says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Persecution isn't a strange thing for the believers of God. It's a good thing for the believers of God that God sovereignly uses to fulfill his plan. And in that passage, the Apostle Peter, who I remind you is somebody who ended up being persecuted to death as he was crucified upside down, he goes on to say this, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. You see that? You see what the blessing is there? We have the spirit of God and persecution proves it. We'll get to that more in a second. But what did the disciples do in the book of Acts after they were flogged and beaten for sharing this gospel message? What did they do? They rejoiced that they were able to suffer 
for the name of Jesus. They saw it as a privilege. And why? Because they were nuts? No. They weren't masochists who just like pain. They rejoiced because they saw the mission that their master had given them, and they knew that their obedience to him not only brought him glory, but would be used to save the souls of their fellow sinners. It would be used to save their souls from the coming destruction. Now, at the same time, according to verses 16 and 23, though we are sheep, and sheep are dumb, we know that, we don't chase the dumbness. We don't just live in our dumbness. We need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's, so he says, if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. You don't keep going back and say, beat me again. That felt good. No, keep moving on. Keep bringing the gospel message. But at the same time, expect persecution when it comes. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as if something strange were happening to you, as Peter said. Now, before we move on, we got to deal with verses 19 and 20. So what is this talking about? Is this saying that Christians don't need to worry about apologetics? Is this saying that we don't have to worry about having answers ready to defend our faith before God because in that moment, God will just boom, beam down supernaturally prophetic and revelatory answers to our brains and we're set regardless of what we know going into that? No, it's not what the point is. It's definitely not saying that. So what's it saying? Well, for one, I think in verse 19, we get a bit of a clue to this answer. What does it say in verse 19? It says, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Which means don't stress and freak out in that moment because God's got you. If we think about this, think back to the Sermon on the Mount. If we're not supposed to worry about what we eat or what we wear, as Jesus taught there, That also includes, doesn't it, being anxious about what we will say in the face of persecution. Now, I don't think that's the only thing that's going on in this passage, but it is a start and it's helpful. Now, with that said, remember at the start how we established that some of the instructions were for the 12, some for the 72, some for today, and some for future tribulation saints. Well, this is one of those verses where it's sort of a tricksy thing to understand who the intended audience is here. So on one hand, it could be the disciples, the 12 disciples only, or the 72, which would fit nicely with what Jesus says in John chapter 20 about how the Holy Spirit would come to his disciples and do what? Teach them all things. That's not for us. We have to learn God's word and study it. God doesn't supernaturally beam the revelation to us like the disciples had. They were given supernatural revelation as the prophets of old were given throughout the Old Testament right? Where God spoke to them, gave them the revelation. Okay. They were given that. We aren't. We have God's word though. Now, if that's the case, then that's, that's for them only, not for us, because it has to do with prophetic revelation, which was necessary for getting us modern day disciples, the thing in front of us that we call the Bible, right? So this could be referring something similar to that. He could be saying, Hey, you know what? 12 to 72 years, you guys are going to have something special. Don't worry. The Holy Spirit will speak through you in a powerful way. That could, be, that could be what he's referring to here. The disciples of Jesus' day would be basically be given supernatural, prophetic, apologetic skills. Right? They wouldn't have to go study atheistic arguments and stuff. God was going to supernaturally give it to them. That could be one answer. Now, on the other hand, maybe that's not it. And this text is for us. But if it is... Does that give us an excuse to be lazy Christians? No. We've got to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We have to be ready in season and out of season as to give a defense for the hope that is within us. As Paul, old Paul, writes to young Timothy, he says, be ready to give a defense. That doesn't sound, right, like the Holy Spirit's showing up and supernaturally beaming the answers into Timothy. No, it's be ready to give, enough, give a defense. And do so in a way where you're not anxious about what you'll say. Rather, trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. So if that's for us, that's what we need to do. We need to know the word of God ahead of time. We need to labor in the word of God as scripture commands us to over and over. And then not be anxious. And then trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not to give us supernatural prophetic revelation in the face of persecution, but to give us supernatural illumination in the face of persecution. He will bring those things to our mind. That's what the Holy Spirit does for every single believer. 
he illuminates the power of God's written word in our life in a way where it's powerful, where we can use it. Without that, we would be completely sunk. You see the difference here? Now, both of these options are biblically correct. I'm not totally sure which one it is, to be honest. But regardless, both are biblically correct. You're going to have to work it out yourself, which one you think it is. But the big takeaway here is this. We should expect persecution. We shouldn't be anxious about what we'll say in the face of persecution. And we should praise God that persecution is bringing him glory and spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. So regardless, that applies for all disciples at all times right there. So what about you? Are you ready for persecution? If our government outlaws churches meeting, are you still going to regularly meet and refuse to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, which is a biblical command that we looked at last week? Are you going to share the gospel even if it means that they throw you in prison? Look, I remember as a kid, you know, pastors would come along and, you know, they'd be preaching. They're like, hey, persecution, would you, would you go to jail for Jesus? Would you die for Jesus? And I'm like, yeah, that's never going to happen in this country, though. I mean, hopefully I would, but come on, realistically, look, look, look at this country. We got a lot of freedom here. I don't think any of us thought that America would disintegrate as fast as it has. And now I'm, in, you know, almost 38 years old, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, I really think pastors of my generation are going to lead the church into persecution. I don't know what it's going to look like. And I'm not saying I have a prophetic word on that or anything, but that's what it's looking like. And so the question is, are you ready for it? I've said this before. Are you preparing for it? Are you living your life in a way where you're training for it? Are you developing your relationship with Christ? Because when persecution comes, that is the only relationship that you're going to be able to count on. That leads us to our third point. The hostility towards the kingdom is religious, it's ruthless, and third, it's relational. During Jesus' time, the penalty for being a disciple of Jesus, they didn't kill him at this time, all right? That came later. But during this time, it was flogging, and that's why we see that in verse 17. But in verse 21, Jesus speaks of a time when brother will hand over brother to death and father his child and children their parent. And why will they do this? For my name's sake. Verse 22 says, this reminds us once again, just how desperately wicked the human heart is. It reminds us how much the human heart hates the gospel, how much it actually hates the real God. It hates it so much that it will turn the most intimate relationships hostile and deadly. And if this doesn't show us the tragic condition of the human heart, I don't know what does. Apart then from the work of the Holy Spirit, the human heart isn't just indifferent to Jesus. The human heart isn't merely just disinterested in Jesus. No, it's completely hostile to Christ, which makes it then hostile to anyone who professes the name of Christ. Sometimes as Christians, we forget this though, don't we? We think we can get them to Christ by showing how reasonable Christianity is how intellectual or sophisticated we are. Anybody ever tempted to do that? Like, oh, I'm, I'm not like other Christians. Those are, those are the kind of the goofball Christians. We try to shy back from the Christian truth. We like to say, no, wait, 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 I'm different. I'm not like other Christians. Come on. You really shouldn't hate Christ. Let me show you how reasonable we Christians are. I believe in science. Come on. I know some don't, but I do. All that Genesis stuff, yeah, that doesn't really mean that. I know every Christian and Jew throughout human history until the last five seconds of history thought it did, but that's not really what it means. This is the spirit of our age right now, isn't it? All around us, it's, it's week after week, I see it seems like new, another evangelical leader has capitulated on basic Christian doctrine in some way, shape, or form. We see this all the time right now with social justice, critical race theory, that stuff we've been talking about about a month ago. We see it with science over and over and over. We were, our culture worships at the altar of science. The last thing you want to be called is anti-scientific. How about sexuality? Christians around us capitulating on that at all? How about a whole lot? And even in subtle ways, too. I, there's lots of Christians now who will say, you know what? It's not 
homosexual attraction that God hates. It's only the act. What? No, not even close. When we try to capitulate and seem reasonable to a world that Christ said is going to hate us if we're faithful to him, not only, all it's going to do is tarnish our, our testimony before their eyes. All it's going to do is make us a bad witness. 1 John 3, 13 says this, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. If the world doesn't hate you, what does that mean then? John 15, 18 through 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That's what it means. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. They wouldn't see you as an enemy. They wouldn't see you as somebody who's out and opposed to them. The truth is, once we come to Christ, to the degree that we are faithful is to the degree to which all of our relationships with a lost and unbelieving world will be one of constant friction. How can it not? Look, if you really believe that that person that you love is headed for judgment, that they're headed for the eternal wrath of God, how could that not affect your relationship with them? Either one of two things is going to happen if it doesn't. Either one, you don't actually love them enough to tell them the truth. Or two, you don't actually believe what you claim to believe. So which is it? Do you love them? Or do you not truly believe the gospel? That's the reality of what we're dealing with here. Now, don't misunderstand me. If the world loathes you because you're a loathsome person, don't blame Jesus for your bad personality habits you need to kick. Right? That's not how that works. If you're a jerk for Jesus, knock it off. But the point is, if you are faithful to the gospel message, the world's going to hate you. If you're faithful to the truth revealed in Scripture, the world's going to think you're an idiot. They're going to think you're a buffoon, a fool. There's heavy language in Scripture that talks about this. The world's going to hate you because they hate Christ. And so, yes, we are sheep before wolves, but we also need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. The truth is, to the degree that we reflect the image of Christ is the degree to which the world will hate us. Because the world hates you. And while that hate will cause a relational divide with our earthly family, it will be fractured if they are unbelievers, we can ultimately take hope knowing that we've been adopted into a new and perfect family, a better family, which is God's family. And this really leads us to the next point. The hostility towards the kingdom is fourth revealing. So about this verse 23, all right, we got to talk about this. Now, two weeks ago when we looked at this, I gave you the interpretation I leaned towards. We didn't have time. There's like actually like six different options here. Um, but look at verse 23 if you have your Bibles. And when we looked at it, I told you that verse 23 wasn't about Jesus' Jesus's second coming. I said it had more to do with the immediate coming that he was going to like, hey, send, send his disciples out, and hey, I'll, I'll catch up there soon down the road. All right? So that's how, that was the interpretive decision we went with last time. But after studying this closer this week, I'm not quite so sure that was the right one. Like 60-40 on this. See, the meaning of this verse is one of the most difficult and highly debated verses in the entire Bible. There's books written on this thing. It's, it's nuts. There's, it, it's highly contested. Even down to the manuscripts. Like, what, what did the original manuscripts actually say? Did they add the phrase, phrase to this? What's going on here? And while the option I gave last time is certainly one of the better ones that we should consider, I'm not sure if that's the right one. See, the issue here that we need to look at is that the title Jesus uses is what? Son of man. Okay? And we've run into this title before. Matthew's brought it up before. We've saw this. It's a messianic title, right? And this title has to do with the Messiah, and there's implications for the Messiah's return on the day of the Lord, right? And we find that in Daniel chapter 7. So basically what Jesus could be saying here is that before the Son of Man returns, tribulation saints will not have had time to go through all of Israel before the Son of Man comes in the clouds of heaven and glory, as we see in Daniel chapter 7. We don't have time to turn there. Bookmark it. Check it out. Read that chapter. Now, remember we said parts of this passage relate to different disciples at different times. 
Okay? It's not across the board. Like, no matter which side you're on, you've got to recognize that. With that said, then, there's a good argument to be made that this here is applying to tribulation saints at the coming of Christ. There's a lot more to that. We're well over time with our late start, so we don't have time to chase that. But the point Christ is making, he says, keep moving when persecution hits. Why? Because the time is short and more people need to hear it. You're not going to finish going through all the, all the towns here. You're not going to finish the job before Christ returns. The time is short. Christ is coming soon, so be on mission. Now, what about the first part of verse 23? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's great. We saved the most controversial thing for last. What is that verse saying? Well, clearly, that's, that's teaching that if we endure, then God will reward us with salvation. We'll earn it, right? Not even close. We know that's heresy. What is it saying then? Jesus isn't saying that endurance brings salvation. Jesus is saying that salvation brings endurance. Catch that? Endurance doesn't bring salvation. Salvation brings endurance. Those are two massively different things. Does that make sense? Jesus isn't saying that endurance earns you salvation. He's saying that endurance in the face of persecution reveals that, you know what? You've already got salvation within you. That's a big, big difference. One is a works-based false gospel. The other is the actual gospel. But at the same time, we have to recognize something about this statement. If the way we respond to persecution reveals whether we're truly saved or not, if we denounce Christ and turn away from him because we love the world and don't want to be persecuted, does that reveal a lack of salvation? Matthew 10 32 through 33, we'll look at this uh, next time we, we gather and look at uh, Matthew 10. But it says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on the flip side of it. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I had several more passages here we don't have time to look at. I'd encourage you to study this out a bit. The warnings are clear. Absolutely clear. Persecution reveals the true church. See, it's easy to show up sporadically at church on Sundays. It's easy to say, hey, yeah, I'm a Christian. It's easy to say that. It's easy to have words. But those words must match a heart that has been truly changed by the power of the gospel. We're not talking legalism. We're not talking works-based salvation here. We're talking about a salvation that is so powerful that it raises the spiritually dead to life. And just as if you have a corpse who comes from death to life, are you going to see some things happening? Yeah. You're going to see breathing. You're going to see talking. You're going to see moving. You're going to see walking. These things are going to happen. And it's not those movements that make you alive. You move that way because you are alive. The same thing here with persecution. Persecution, then, is the plan for the church. Persecution not only brings glory to God, it not only brings the gospel to the lost, but it also, we have to recognize here, church, it reveals the lost. Because many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name and do that in your name? What does he say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Why does he say that? Because they did not trust in the gospel of Christ. They, they trusted in a false gospel, in a religious system maybe. It reveals the lost. Persecution absolutely does. As the text tells us, those who endure to the end will be saved, not because they have endured, but because. Why? Because ultimately Christ endured for us but we never could. Upon the cross, Christ endured the most horrifying religious persecution. Upon the cross, Christ endured the most ruthless and bloody of persecutions. And upon the cross, Christ endured the most agonizing relational persecution. 
What did he cry out? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And so church, because Christ endured for us, and because of that alone, we through his power can endure. We can endure by grace through faith in his name. We can endure for him, for his glory, which will then bring salvation to those who are stranded, those without hope, who desperately need it. And as we do so, we can give God all the praise and all the glory because standing strong in the face of persecution reveals salvation that he's given to us is actually in us. Pray with me. Father, I just thank you for this text. It's a difficult text. There's a lot in this. Lord, I just ask that you would work through the foolishness of preaching that my words today would be received as your words, not my own opinions, my own thoughts. We're not here for that. So, Father, I just pray that you would help us as a church to prepare for persecution, to be ready for it, so that we might stand strong and endure, not because we're trying to earn our salvation or get our ticket to heaven, but because we have been changed by the power of the gospel We have been changed because we've seen the Son of God, Christ, endure for us what we could never endure upon a cross. Help us to remember that. Help us to live by that. Father, I also pray for the one today here who has maybe trusted a false gospel, who is Christian only in name. Father, I pray that the power of the true gospel would resonate in their lives. They would trust in Christ not in religious systems, not in a prayer, not in their religiosity, but they would trust in Christ. They would look to Christ for their holiness. Father, I also pray for the Christian today who might be struggling. Maybe they're struggling with sin. Maybe they're struggling with sorrow or just some sort of something in their life. I just pray for them, Lord, too, that they would be encouraged They would be encouraged by the hope of the gospel. They would be encouraged by the face of their Savior, who loves them and died for them. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song?